Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this BTOG masterclass entitled Immunotherapy Tips and Tricks. Uh, this is one of a series of webinars that we're hosting uh, in BTOG for your greater education and experience. Uh, my name is Sanjay Popper, and I'm the chair of the BTOG Steering Committee and Medical Oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital. Now, remember all the work that we do in BTOG, uh, whenever it's sponsored, the sponsors of this particular activity and the BTOG events do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of the material that's being presented. I'd like to give you all a very warm welcome, those of you that are able to join us live and those of you that are listening to this on your podcast. Um, and just to remember that our executive team, Dawn and Gina, are available either at info at btog.org or via the website for all of your needs from the BTOG viewpoint. So a few uh, aspects of housekeeping. We like to keep this as interactive as possible, so please do submit your text questions uh, in the chat box and they'll pop up and we'll be able to post them to uh, our uh, speakers. Now, today we're going to have a very live interactions uh, dis discussion more than anything else. So do pop your questions in as they arise. Don't just wait for right at the end. Uh, as you've got a bright idea, put your question in and we can take that uh, throughout the course of the uh, evening. Uh, we will send you an email for your feedback and your feedback is as ever really important to us and this will also trigger a certificate of attendance. Uh, participants uh, that are listening to this using the archive version uh, on a podcast, uh, you can record it in your CPD diary from the Royal College of Physicians using the approval code 138552 for up to four weeks after the event date, which is the uh, up till the 6th of January. So today we're going to have three excellent speakers talking about immunotherapy and thoracic malignancies. My colleague Rafael Califano is going to be talking about small cell. My colleague Shobit Bojal is going to be talking about non-small cell. And my colleague Joanna Evans is going to be talking about immunotherapy toxicity. It's a really tricky and thorny issue. We're just going to have a brief overview and then we're going to have a lot of discussion for the remaining half an hour of the meeting. So overall, uh, uh, initially I'm going to move over to my colleague uh, Rafael Califano. Rafael, come online and speak to us about immunotherapy in small cell. Thank you very much Sanjay and uh, thanks for all the co colleagues who are joining us uh, for this educational event hosted by BTOG. It's, it's my privilege to be here. Small cell lung cancer is a very aggressive disease, and certainly the addition of immunotherapy to the first line armamentarium has been very welcome. Over the next uh, minutes together, these are my disclosure, I'm going to give you a brief background about the current situation for small cell lung cancer, but then I will focus on the data that supports the use of first line chemoimmunotherapy. And in particular, I'll try and discuss with you the potential role of any biomarkers to select patients most likely to benefit. I will then conclude that I'll be very happy to take your questions during the discussion later on. Small cell lung cancer is a very aggressive disease. Despite the excellent responses to first-line platinum etoposide, we all know that these responses are usually short-lived. And when we transition to second-line chemotherapy, it's unfortunately a very difficult situation for for our patients, as we know that this has, unfortunately, very limited clinical efficacy. 
It's not uncommon in clinical practice to re-challenge our patient with platinum-based chemotherapy if they have platinum-sensitive disease, which is defined as having a time to progression of at least three months since the last cycle of chemotherapy. But what about the use of first-line immune checkpoint blockade? The first trial that was presented evaluating this strategy is Empower133, which is a large phase three randomized clinical trial evaluated patients with untreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer with a good, good performance status who were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to carboplatin and and placebo for four cycles or carboplatin etoposide and atezolizumab for four cycles followed by atezolizumab or placebo as a maintenance setting until progressive disease or loss of clinical benefit. The trial had two core primary endpoints, overall survival and investigator assessed progression-free survival. As part of the trial design, patients enrolled in both arms could receive prophylactic cranial radiation, but consolidation radiotherapy to the chest was not allowed. The trial at the first data cutoff was a positive study demonstrating a longer overall survival favoring the chemoimmunotherapy arm over the standard carboplatinotoposide with a median overall survival of 12.3 months versus 10.3 months and another ratio of 0.7. If you look at the 12 months overall survival rates, this was clearly uh, higher in the chemoimmunotherapy arm at 51% versus 38% for the standard carboplatinotoposide arm. The orders also presented data on overall survival with a longer follow-up, this time nearly 23 months. And there was a consistent benefit favoring the chemoimmunotherapy arm in terms of overall survival. If you focus your attention this time on the 18 months overall survival rate, it was very important to see that this was still higher in the chemoimmunotherapy arm, this time at 34% versus 21% of patients still alive at 18 months, favoring the atenzolizumab arm. But what about the summary in terms of safety for these patients? It was very important to see that the addition of atenzolizumab to standard carboplatin etoposide didn't increase the incidence of treatment-related adverse events or serious adverse events. It goes without saying that there was a higher incidence of immune-related adverse events in the chemoimmunotherapy arm with approximately 10% of patients who had to withdraw treatment due to adverse events which were related to atezolizumab. The median duration of treatment with atezolizumab in this trial was less than five months with a median number of doses for the immunotherapy part of seven with a range between one to 30. Almost all patients had four slugs of chemotherapy as a backbone. If we have a more in-depth look at the adverse events, again, I think it was reassuring from a clinical point of view to see that addition of atezolizumab to carboplatinotoposide did not increase the incidence of bone marrow toxicity. If you look at the immune-related adverse events, these were more frequent in the atezolizumab arm, of course, and these were mostly rash hepatitis, infusion-related reaction together with pneumonitis, colitis, or pancreatitis. The vast majority of these immune-related adverse events had the grade of 1 and 2. And if you look at the grade 3 or 4 in terms of incidence, this was around 2% for rash hepatitis and reactions, and less than 1% for pneumonitis, which is an adverse event, which is relevant for clinical practice.
Another study to evaluate the chemoimmunotherapy strategy in extensive stage small cell lung cancer is the Caspian study, this time three arms, untreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer patient, good performance status, randomized to receive platinum metoposide up to six cycles, and this time was dealer's choice, either carboplatinum metoposide or cisplatinum metoposide. The investigational arms had four cycles of the platinum metoposide backbone plus duvalumab or plus duvalumab and trimelimumab. For patients who were randomized to the standard chemotherapy arm, there was the option of prophylactic radiation up to after six cycles of treatment. For patients who were randomized to the investigational arms, there was the maintenance phase with duvalumab every four weeks until progressive disease. The primary endpoint of this study was overall survival, and it's important to point out that this study did not allow prophylactic cranial radiation in the investigational arms and also did not allow consolidation radiotherapy to the chest in the study. The study was a positive study demonstrating that the combination of durvalumab plus platinum metoposide was superior in terms of overall survival to standard chemotherapy. This was not seen as there was no statistically significant advantage for the durvatremi EPR. This is the two years overall survival data where the median for the Durva EPR was 12.9 months versus 10.5 months with another ratio of 0.75. It's always important to look at the uh, long-term impact. So if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, the uh, 24 months overall survival rate was around 24% for the Durva EPR versus only 14.4% in the standard chemotherapy arm. Very recently, only a couple of months ago, at the ESMO Congress, Professor Pazares presented the data with the three years overall survival, and there was a consistent benefit favoring Durva EP versus EP with a median follow-up for nearly 40 months. What was very impressive to see was that at 36 months, 17% of patients in the chemoimmunotherapy arm were alive when compared to only 5% for patients in the standard chemotherapy arm. And this is something that we would never expect a number of years ago for patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. Looking at safety, uh, this is the table that summarizes the serious adverse events for the three arms. If you focus your attention on the Durva EP arm, which was the winning arm, you could see that the vast majority of uh, the serious adverse events were related to bone marrow toxicity with fibrin neutropenia on top. And if you look at the treatment-related adverse events which led to death, this was 2% in the Durva EP arm versus less than 1% in the standard chemotherapy arm. Looking at the immune-related adverse events, which are very relevant for this talk, uh, this table summarizes the most common immune-related adverse events together with the time to onset. On the left-hand side, in blue, is the Durva EP arm. The most common immune-related adverse events were pneumonitis, thyroid disturbances, type 1 diabetes, together with rash and colitis, of which grade 3 and worse was pneumonitis, which only 1%, type 1 diabetes, grade 3 or worse, was 2%, together with hepatitis. So this is something that is relevant uh, for our patients in clinical practice. And what was important to see was in terms of time to onset, the quickest one to onset was usually the rash and the colitis, followed by thyroid disturbances with pneumonitis arising up to uh, six to eight months, up to a year 
uh, after starting treatment. So despite the addition of chemoimmunotherapy may have a, a very good impact on patient's outcome, the reality is that half of the patients will progress within six months of treatment. So the relevant question in clinical practice is, can we select our patients or using any biomarker to have an idea about who is most likely to benefit? And I will run through the uh, subgroup analysis evaluating different biomarkers in this study. This is the forest plot for Empower 133, where the orders presented also the impact of the blood tumor mutational burden on overall survival using two cats, 10 mutation per megabase and 16 mutation per megabase. And you could see that unfortunately we're not able to use blood TMB to select patients most likely to benefit. They also presented the the impact of pdl one expression on overall survival. This is a postdoc analysis as the sample was not mandatory for pdl one expression. And if you look at the forest plot using a cutoff of more or less than 1% or more or less than 5%, you can't use pdl one to select patients most likely to benefit. So patients should be treated independently on the pdl one expression. They also reported very interestingly on the impact of blood TMB and pdl one on the long-term survivors, which are defined as patients who lived for at least 18 months since randomization. And if you look at this tornado plot, there is absolutely no difference in, in terms of impact on overall survival from Atizo using blood TMB or any uh, PDL1 expression cutoff. This is very similar data from the Caspian study, again, looking at overall survival and PDL1 expression, this time on immune cells and tumor cells with a cutoff of more or less than 1%. Duvalumab plus EP was associated with improved overall survival compared to standard chemotherapy, regardless of any PDL1 expression using a 1% cutoff. The authors also presented the impact of this time tumor, tumor mutational burden on the left hand side that highlighted the Duva EP versus EP. And again, no difference using different cutoff from 10 to 14 mutation per megabase. So, what is the message that I would like you to take home is that certainly first-line platinum metoposide plus atezolizumab or durvalumab is a new standard of care for selected patients with extensive stage cell lung cancer. Unfortunately, there is no biomarker of clinical characteristics that can help selecting patients most likely to benefit. In my clinical experience, the toxicity profile seems to be very similar to what has been reported in osmos cell and cancer studies for these agents, and also the delivery of prophylactic current radiation and thoracic radiotherapy with immunotherapy seems to be safe. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Raffaele. Thank you for that uh, overview. And uh, I'll now move on to my next colleague, who is Dr. Shobit Bajal, who's a consultant medical oncologist at Birmingham, who's going to briefly overview immunotherapy, non-small cell lung cancer key points. Over to you, Shobit. Thank you, Sanjay, and uh, thank you everyone for, for listening in. So this is going to be a, a whirlwind tour in terms of uh, immunotherapy in the non-small cell lung cancer setting, kind of clinical applications, but evidence-based. Um, Right, and we're going to go through this uh, stage-wise. I'm going to start at the bottom of the ladder with the palliative setting, uh, which is where immunotherapies first enter the non-small cell uh, landscape and where the most evidence base and uh, application, clinical application lies. And then we'll move up the staging ladder to see where it's now being incorporated in terms of earlier stage disease. 
first of all, I'm just going to talk about biomarkers. So Raphael talked about um, there are different biomarkers out there, TMB, as Raphael talked about, and, and pd one But really, I just want to break this down to keep this very simple. In terms of non-small cell lung cancer, the real, uh, but the, the clinically applicable biomarker at this current point in time is PDL1. And we can measure PDL1 on different areas, but we're talking about PDL1 on the tumor cell. And we, for clinical purposes or, or, or treatment purposes, we break this down into three categories. Uh, the PDL1 high expressors, that's 50% and higher. Uh, the low expressors, 1 to 49, and those are PDL1 negative or unknown. And in terms of the treatment landscape, I'm going to use, um, I've pinched these from the NICE website, and these are quite nice algorithms to really take us through the, the, the treatment options um, for or how immunotherapy is incorporated itself into the non-small cell lung cancer environment. And again, to say very similar to what Raphael was saying about small cell, I mean, about five years back, um, you know, th this algorithm looked very simple. We only had old school chemotherapy with you know, pretty poor outcomes. So immunotherapy has completely um, shaken that up and we've got, you know, a whole different uh, landscape now. So in terms of pdl one first line treatment, we're going to first focus on those high expressors. That's pdl one high, that's 50% or more. And yes, histology does matter for, for treatments, but principles in terms of how we, uh, how the treatments um, are administered are pretty similar for the squamous and the non-squamous population. In the non-squamous, we're talking about patients without driver mutations. Um, and so for these patients, the evidence base is telling us that we can treat these patients, the majority of these patients with single agent immunotherapy, pembrolizumab, and more recently we've got atezolizumab approved in this setting. Um, and as I said, it's the majority of patients. There are some patients where we need to up the ante a bit more and go with a slightly more aggressive regime with chemotherapy and uh, chemotherapy added into the immunotherapy, but that adds to the toxicity burden. So for the majority and where we can, uh, we will go with single agent immunotherapy. And the evidence base for that comes from the Keynote 024 study, and I've got the PF, uh, PFS and OS uh, Kaplan-Mars, and you can see the hazard ratio is significantly in favor here for pembrolizumab. Um, but really, I think the eye-catching data is the five-year overall survival data, which is uh, showing us that about a third of patients are still alive at five years. And this is outcomes that were probably inconceivable uh, before the advent or before the introduction of immunotherapy in this landscape. Um, and and that, that does correlate with clinical practice. This isn't just trial, clinical trial, um, the world of clinical trials. You know, if you have a high pd one patient, We'll talk about PDL1 as how good a biomarker it is, but once you've got past that three to six month mark of a positive scan, you can usually take your, from a clinical clinical efficacy perspective at least, take your foot off the pedal and patients tend to do well. So it does correlate with, with practice and we're almost changing uh, this condition for this subgroup of patients into a chronic disease. And I say it with hesitation, but are we potentially curing a small subgroup of these patients? What do we do? So then the other side of the algorithm, so we're now looking at the PDL1 low patients, so that's less or low or negative, that's 50% or lower. Uh, and for these patients, we need to up the ante uh, to try and get that benefit of the immunotherapy. And that means using combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy. So the principles remain the same between the two histological subtypes. 
but we do use different chemotherapy backbones. So for our non-squamous population, we use platinum pemetrexide, which I would say is more palatable. Our non-squamous tend to be fitter. These are tougher treatments than immunotherapy on its own. Um, but for the squamous population, we're talking about a carboplatin paclitaxel backbone, chemo, uh, chemotherapy backbone. Doses which are pretty high. Uh, it's not a chemo regime that was very um, prevalent in the UK. And the doses are a little bit higher of what we're, we're normally used to. And sadly, our squamous patients, as we know, tend to be uh, tend to carry more comorbidities, can be of a lower performance status. So it, it, there are uh, not as many squamous patients may be fit enough to take on this regime. It is a tough regime, uh, but but definitely a good performance status fit patients. You know that this is going to be the treatment that we're we're going to be aiming for. And the data for this, we've got two, two studies. We've got the Keynote 189, which is focused on the non-squamous population, and Keynote 407 on the squamous population. And again, we're seeing um, clear um, separation of the curves on the, on the Kaplan-Myers in benefit for the IO chemo combinations, um, with a suggestion of uh, improved hazard ratios as the pdl one levels go higher. There are other first-line treatment options. Um, there's the quadruplet of the Impal 150 from based on the Impal 150 study. And what does that bring? Bevacizumab, uh, the VEGF inhibitor, into the chemo IO uh, cocktail. Um, a complex study. Um, does it really add much more to chemo Pembro? In my opinion, not really. Where it does stand out on its own is its data in the EGFR mutated population who progressed on their TKIs. And for me, that's probably where this treatment, um, where I would be looking at in, uh, applying it into my clinical practice. Again, it's a toxicity-wise, it's a tough regime. Logistically, it's a tough regime in terms of um, day unit time. So, uh, you know, it, its use is, utilization is limited, in my opinion, to that, that subgroup of patients. What about other IO um, Adding in other other classes of uh, checkpoint or checkpoint inhibitors as CTLA four inhibitors. This has been explored in the Checkmate studies um, in Mystique. Um, again, complex studies, multiple arms, um, different regimes. Again, uh, breaking it down, in my opinion, probably doesn't bring a huge amount more to what we've already got available. Um, and so, potentially for me, it's not really something applicable. Suggestion maybe in the checkmate studies that the PDL1 negative patients do get a, an added benefit from the um, CTLA4 um, uh, PD1 inhibitor combination. But as I said, from my perspective, in terms of application, it probably is with the, the Pembro chemo combinations. What do we do? Uh, second line, well, second line is where the immunotherapies first came into play in our uh, non small cell lung cancer landscape. And there's an array of studies using the different IO agents, comparing them against docetaxel. And they were clearly superior and incorporated in our clinical practice. But as they've migrated to the first line setting, in my, my usage in the second line has, has dropped dramatically. I rarely prescribe IO in the second line because, it, you know, from my perspective, if you've got a fit patient, well patient, with no contraindications to immunotherapy, they should be receiving it either single agent or in combination in the first line setting. And we're not in a paradigm of re-challenging with immunotherapy. So that one hit is in the first line setting. So yes, it is available. It's available with different agents, with different uh, kind of minutiae in terms of pdl one expression. Uh, but as I said, my usage has significantly dropped off. The only ones patients really where I may not be using an IO 
in that first line setting is where they've got a contraindication to it. And in that case, I'm not gonna be using it in the second line. If we just move up the staging ladder, so stage three, stage three patients, classically, uh, this is non-operable patients treated with chemo radiotherapy. Historically in the UK, we were very sequential chemo radiotherapy heavy uh, with outcomes of, uh, or variable uh, clinical outcomes. You know, we weren't really achieving a great deal in terms of benefit for these patients. And there hadn't been any great gains for decades for that population. And that moves us to the Pacific clinical trials. This was a phase three uh, study uh, for patients who'd had concurrent chemo radiotherapy for non-operable stage three uh, non-small cell lung cancer and were then randomized two to one to receive either divulimab for 12 months or placebo. And quick snapshots of the um, primary endpoints of PFS and OS, as you can see, were significantly in favor for the um, uh, divulimab treated arm. And there is now longer term data again showing that these benefits are maintained long term. And this is completely revolutionize how we manage stage three, both in terms of the clinical outcomes we can achieve with Devulimab, but also forcing our hand to, to make the correct switch in the UK from sequential chemoradiotherapy to concurrent where it's appropriate. Neoadjuvant, I'm not gonna say much here because at this point in time, there's no, uh, in terms of reimbursed application, but this is an area of high in, uh, or high trial activity. Um, using either immunotherapy on its own or immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy prior to surgery. Um, early readouts are showing quite a bit of um, uh, benefit. So I think the landscape in this setting, in my opinion, is likely to change in the coming years. And I'm hopeful we'll have some sort of treatment options incorporated in the near future. And finally, adjuvant setting. So I think it's fair to say that we've really not helped our surgical colleagues out over the years in terms of adding to the benefit of their surgical resections. We've been using platinum doublet chemotherapy for decades with very modest benefits of kind of five to 10% um, survival gain at five years. Uh, but now we've got, got the Empower 010 uh, study, which uh, explored a tezolizumab given after the adjuvant chemotherapy for 12 months. And for the pdl one positive group, um, we're seeing a reduction, 34% reduction in the risk of disease uh, recurrence. And hopefully this will be a treatment option we will have available in the near future. Uh, take home messages, things I've learned. Uh, first of all, biomarkers. I think the first thing to stress is pd one it's not a clean biomarker. It's not like having a driver mutation. Um, there's, there's, uh, it's high, high expressors may not respond. Low expressors can respond. So it's not a clean science. There's tumor heterogeneity, there's variability in how it's read, um, but it's the best we've got. Um, treatment selection, as I said, you know, the, the algorithms look neat, but we've got to factor in the patient and then more important, their disease characteristics, their burden of disease, uh, their rate of progression to determine how aggressive we need to go with the, with the treatment. Um, again, my, I keep using the analogy of driver mutations. We're in that mindset where you've got a biomarker you start somebody on treatment, you expect the tumor to melt away by the first scan. Now, immunotherapy is slightly different. We don't always see those um, responses. Um, and I think it's about managing patients' expectations. That the disease may, you may not get a, a, a resist criteria partial response, but we're here for the long game. And even that disease control can still be durable. Uh, there's a lot bantered about pseudoprogression. 
yes, I have seen it, but I don't think it's it's as commonly, well, I've definitely not in my practice as commonly as I've seen. So I think be wary of getting too bogged down with these things. I think really assess the patient formally, make sure with that scan that you're interpreting it with how the patient is doing clinically. But that doesn't stop this treatment on progression and definitely patients are gaining clinic or are clinically well or gaining clinical benefit. I will treat on progression. Um, I don't want to run into my 10 minutes, but I think, you know, steroids, it's a tough, uh, difficult topic. There is, understandably, with steroids being immunosuppressive, um, there is a concern that they will dampen down the effects of immunotherapy. And there are a lot of, um, lot of data out there, meta-analyses, looking at steroid use when patients start immunotherapy. And these patients do do less well. But that could be confounded by the fact that these are, they may have other factors that are affecting their prognosis for the reason why they are actually on steroids. Uh, but yes, definitely my aim is to get patients on either zero steroids or as low as possible um, uh, before starting immunotherapy. And if they are on steroids and you're starting, you've really got to think what else is going on here um, and, and potentially be going with a more aggressive regime. Brain Mets kind of feeds into that steroid issue. Because again, if patients have got symptomatic brain mets, they're likely to be on steroids. And it really is a, it is a complex area um, and, and one where it's a game with, our, with the clinics about how we get, treat them, get the steroids down in time for treatment. But I know the next talk's about toxicity. One thing I would say is toxicities, as you might hear shortly, can take a while to settle down uh, with prolonged courses of steroids. But that's a different paradigm than patients starting their treatment on steroids. All I'd say is it, it can be a nervy time because patients can be off treatment for a long period of time. But what we see or what I tend to see is that once, if they, they're in that three to six months and the tumor's responded, it's almost as though if the immune system's primed, it is primed. And having those gaps off treatment are usually not detrimental. We don't run into disease progression. And as I've shown, clearly we're only at the tip of the iceberg. Um, so yeah, I think uh, we're going to see a lot more immunotherapy and a lot more uh, indications in non-small cell. Thank you. Great, uh, Shobit, thanks for that update. And our final speaker uh, today is Dr. Joanne Evans. Joanne is a consultant medical oncologist at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. And Joanne's going to speak to us about the really important topics or topic of managing immunotherapy uh, toxicities. So, Joe, uh, make yourself uh, apparent and uh, over to you, please. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you. And thank you for the invite. When I was first asked to give this talk, I was really honoured. And then it dawned on me that I'd agreed to talk about the management of immunotherapy toxicities in just 10 minutes. So that's what I'm going to try to do, always up for a challenge. So I think that really, if you want to manage IO toxicity, you really have to have a good system and a good network behind you to be able to do so. And I would argue that the fundamentals of the management of immune uh, checkpoint inhibitor toxicity can be represented by this, um, by this triangle. So the things that we need are education, expertise and guidelines. So education, we need to educate our patients about immunotherapy and immunotherapy toxicity and what to look out for themselves. We need to educate our front door, and that's our um, ED colleagues, it's our GPs, it's the acute medical take, as to the variety and complexity of these presentations. And we need to educate ourselves as well. Not all oncologists um, prescribe immune checkpoint inhibitors, but quite often we're all involved in select, um, selected take. So it's really important that we educate ourselves and keep our knowledge base fresh. 
So the next point on the triangle is expertise. And it's really important within a trust to identify oncology uh, champions with an expertise in, in managing IO toxicity. It's really important to build an infrastructure for research into IO toxicity, because if we don't understand the fundamentals of why something's happening within a tissue, being able to alter management and hopefully in the long term avoid heavy duty immunosuppression would be amazing. We also need to collaborate with our non-oncology subspecialities to increase awareness of biotoxicity and to gain understanding and help in managing these complications. Unlike traditional complications associated with cytotoxic chemotherapy, where quite often the answer is, um, is time, um, iotoxicity is different. It's not dose dependent, it's not time dependent, and quite often it's not something that we can manage on our own within oncology. Which brings us to guidelines, having solid guidelines within trust and for your satellite hospitals for people to understand how to manage the initial element of iotoxicity, including care order bundle sets, are quite useful for both initial management of iotoxicity and for the management of corticosteroid refractory disease. And I say that with some caveats because sometimes I think guidelines take away the ability of three thought and a knowledge uh, application, but on the whole, in order to have safe delivery of standard care, I think they're really important. And my phone has, there we go. Okay, so how can we identify IO toxicity? Because if you can't identify it, you won't manage it and patients will suffer. So there are different ways of trying to achieve this. We have some knowledge about timescales from all of the trials you've already heard about and from um, largely melanoma work, which was the real trailblazer for the use of immune um, checkpoint inhibitors. So we know that some toxicities are more common at some time points. As you can see, both of these um, uh, graphs try to depict that. They're both taken from the ESMO IO toxicity guidelines. The first gives you some idea of when certain toxicities are, are most prevalent and how long they tend to be an issue for. Um, and the second um, graph shows you actually there's quite a large range. So you could argue that, you know, rash is seen early. But as you can see from the second graph here, actually rash um, can still become a problem um, some 12 months after after starting. So. Timescales are useful, but not definitive. The other way to think of things is by having a good sieve, starting from the top to the bottom when you're reviewing patients. So um, starting with the, the CNS, have they got any weird CNS symptoms? Have they got overwhelming fatigue? Do they have brain fog? Have they got sterile meningitis? Have they got evidence of hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, pneumonitis? myocarditis working down. The second um, picture here is taken from uh, cancer.gov, the American website, which depicts um, the common toxicities. So the blue circle being how common a toxicity is, and it's representing all PDL1 and, uh, and PD1 antibodies, and the red circle being how catastrophic they can be. So how many of those toxicities tend to be on the higher grade end of the scale? So identification is difficult. For some things, it will be incredibly apparent if someone comes in and they usually empty, open their bowels once a day and now they're opening their bowels 10 times a day, that's really easy. If someone comes in with fatigue or a general fog or some nonspecific uh, pains or aches, that can be quite 
a lot more challenging to try to delineate is this IO toxicity or is it caused by another issue? Um, sorry, my ticker clicker keeps turning my phone off. So here we go to the next slide. So you've identified your IO toxicity. Um, could I have the next slide, slide, please? Sorry, my ticker's lost um, connectivity. So you've identified a toxicity that you're reasonably confident is caused by immune checkpoint inhibition. So what do you do um, with it? So this is an acronym that my DPhil supervisor used to me, at me, I suspect, on an almost daily basis. And he used to say, with anything, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. And I think that was just his way of accusing me of being stupid on an almost daily basis. But there we go. So these are an example of generic general management advice from Clatterbridge on managing IO toxicity. Most um, institutions will have their own guidelines. And if you don't have guidelines, then you probably can't go wrong with the ESMO guidelines. So essentially it uses a traffic light scheme, which I think is quite nice and breaks things down into low um, grade toxicity all the way up to your high grade toxicity. And the basic fundamentals for whatever the toxicity is are generally the same. So for um, a EORTC CTC grade one toxicity, on the whole, you'd investigate, you do all of your tests to see if you are convinced that this is caused by the IO, you will monitor. So quite often these patients will need weekly, if not more frequently, um, to be seen either on your ambulatory unit or in clinic and to plan. I would argue the most important element of management if you suspect IO toxicity is to plan because then you can't be caught out. So for grade two and some grade threes, so you would treat. Um, and the mainstay of treatment for grade two and some grade three um, toxicities is oral steroids, typically one to two milligrams per kilogram of oral prednisolone. Also canvassing early specialist input. So if you've got a patient with a grade two, grade three hepatitis, early discussion with hepatology, if you have that available to you can be um, very useful. Uh, investigate, rule out other causes. You know, if you've got a patient with colitis, is this CMV reactivation or is it a true IO um, colitis? Monitor, it's really important to monitor these patients. So where I work, anyone that's um, been started on oral steroids that are well enough to be at home, tend to come up to the unit for the first 72 hours to make sure their toxicity is settling and to ensure they don't need to be admitted. In these patients, you admit the um, checkpoint inhibitor um, and plan for what would happen if things don't settle. For grade three or some grade three and all grade four toxicity, patients often need to be admitted. These are the patients who need high dose IV steroids and typically again, one to two milligrams per kilogram. So the number is quite easy to remember. It's the same, but this time methylprednisolone. So, uh, early specialist input. So all of our grade four patients get flagged to the right speciality within 24 hours of identification of the problem. And again, like the others, investigate, monitor, omit and plan. So why do you need to plan and what do you need to plan for? So the steroid wean is what we all hope we're planning for. And that's usually reasonably straightforward. When a patient has responded and they are being weaned, quite often the patient can be handed back to their own team to monitor with either regular bloods, a phone call or reviewing clinic. Why planning is important is so that you're not caught out if a patient doesn't settle. 
So if at 72 hours of IV methyl PREG, your patient's toxicity hasn't settled, then this is when we need to be a team. This is when we need our phone of friends and this is when we need specialist advice. So um, this is usually the point when you're beginning to contemplate whether you need to use other um, immunosuppressive agents and actually whether you need tissue to further try to delineate exactly what's going on. So in 10 minutes, it's incredibly difficult to talk about the management of all IO toxicity, but what I'm hoping I've done is cover what you really need and what, back, you know, what backing you need to be able to manage these problems. And also to talk about how you may look at trying to identify them and the very, very, very top level management of these problems. So the things I've learned 100% is you need to have a phone a friend. And actually what I've learned for IO toxicity is you need to have at least 10 phone friends. You need to have a hepatologist, a cardiologist, a neurologist, somebody in RESP, gastroenterologist, rheumatology, dermatology, endocrinology, renal ophthalmology. It really is a team sport. So um, it's really difficult to, to manage a problem without specialist um, input. So although um, immune toxicity is new to them, the management of autoimmune disease, which these quite often emulate, is not, and they can be an incredibly useful um, contact, especially if a patient needs specialist input. Always think immune checkpoint toxicity if you have a patient on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, because if you don't spot it, you can't manage it, and some things can be really vague. Early aggressive management. So we have um, already heard that, you know, Steroid use can be associated with muted uh, responses to immunotherapy, but equally, if you don't control the immunotherapy toxicity, then you have no chance of trying to reestablish them back on treatment. And this is probably one of the few um, times where actually you don't want to be cautious with your steroids. We have up to 12 weeks to manage IO toxicity before funding becomes an issue, and we have that long for a reason. So most of the failures of management that I have seen have been due to things like um, insufficient doses of steroid up, up front or weans that are way too rapid. Know your local guidelines. And if you don't have them or if you can't find them, then you probably won't go far wrong with the ESMO guidelines. Also, remember to warn patients about the risk of adrenal crisis, sick day rules and all patients should be issued with a steroid alert card. Have a clear escalation plan in the notes right from the first review as well as your steroid tapering plan. And their presentation is your window of opportunity for learning and for increasing your knowledge base. So if you don't know what you would do for that um, particular presentation, if um, they don't settle within 72 hours, look it up, document what you've read in the notes. It's a good way of learning and it also makes it very, very clear if somebody else encounters that patient, what needs to be done next. So that really is a rapid run through of the management of, of immunotherapy toxicities. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. That's a superb overview. And if I could invite all our speakers to um, uh, show themselves, uh, we're then going to have a uh, brief uh, discussion about various aspects. Please do um, keep your questions coming in. Uh, and uh, Joe, you talked about weaning of steroids. What's a rapid wean? What's a normal wean? So I saw someone on the unit last week whose LFTs, it was a IO-induced hepatitis. LFTs really weren't um, falling. And I just happened to be on the unit because it was my week on. Um, and I think that was largely in part that they were started on 
um, quite a low dose of prednisolone, certainly not anywhere close to one milligrams per kilogram. And they basically had their steroids brought down by 50% every two or three days. Um, so I think um, you just have to be cautious. I think that, you know, um, Sobit said that the immune system, once it's primed, it's primed. And that's good for response to IO, but it also tells you what to expect with regards to um, toxicity and complications. So I typically wean people really, really slowly. I make sure I know their 12 week date. So I know at what point we're going to have issues with funding. And I try to plan their wean so they finish around four weeks before that. And typically five milligrams of prednisolone every five days until they're at, at five or 10 milligrams of prednisolone before I start to think, will I rechallenge? Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, question for Raffaele. We have, uh, would we have access to Develamab EP chemo for small cell in the UK? Is it being considered? You saw that presented that lovely uh, survival data. We haven't seen that for 133. Yeah, so we, we did have access via an expanded access scheme uh, in the past. So at present, I think you definitely have the uh, Empower 133 regimen. Uh, you have to think about that the data for Caspian has got a longer follow-up. We haven't seen that kind of long follow-up for Empower 133. The Caspian was not nearly 40 months. And I hope that we can see it with the Empower 133 as well. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is I think AstraZeneca did not submit to NICE for the submission. So I'd encourage AstraZeneca to consider that. We certainly have a... Um, so at present, I think, is, as you say, is not uh, available. So, uh, Raphael, who should not get IO, chemo IO in small cell? Uh, are you treating everybody? Or are you being really, really strict only if they're a trial candidate? Where, where is real life? So um, I am being quite cautious and sadly i wouldn't want to treat patients who are needing steroids to keep them afloat because these are you know ps3 patients would be sorry ps3 patients you know would be much more unwell if they couldn't get steroids i tend to be usually ps0 to 10 to 3 patients who are ps0 to 1 who have no absolute contraindication to immunotherapy if they have active and symptomatic brain metastasis needing steroids, I would steer away because the data at present is not available. The patients with symptomatic brain metastasis were not allowed of any of the phase three randomized clinical trials. And uh, realistically, I, I tend to make sure that you know patients have to be fit for chemotherapy first for doublet. And I would try as long as the organ function allows. If you've got heavy burden of liver metastasis, the liver function tests that are already deranged, I think you need to be careful because you may develop hepatitis and you don't know if they're responding very quickly to bring down these LFTs. So I'm erring on the side of caution, I have to say. No, that makes sense. And what about paraneoplastic syndromes at presentation? Is that a contraindication? I would say short answer is no. You know, vast majority of patients who are walking through our door will have, uh, you know, paraneoplastic SIDH uh, as a minimum. You may have the paraneoplastic ACTH. What we know from retrospective series is that patients with paraneoplastic syndromes will not have worse immune-related toxicity, but you would hope that achieving a better response, you would treat the paraneoplastic syndrome as well as the cancer. And um, uh, with uh, small cell, previously we were, <clears throat> we were giving PCI and thoracic palliative radiotherapy in the REST or CREST uh, indication. Um, what's, what's your position on that with small cell? 
So in my practice, and I would say vast majority of colleagues at the Christie, we tend to refer for prophylactic coronary radiation uh, because that was allowed in the study. Uh, the main relevant question is, should we give consolidation radiotherapy to the chest? Because that was not allowed. I think uh, the short answer is that we will consider them because we know from the Nicholas study that immunotherapy can be delivered safely with high dose radiotherapy to the chest. You know, this was a study in non-small cell and the primary endpoint was toxicity, but that reassures me in a way that certainly we're not increasing the potential chance of getting immunotherapy pneumonitis because that was the worry from a clinical point of view. So I have to say, we discuss patients on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. I will make the referral for consolidation radiotherapy. If they have a lot of residual disease in the chest, we will do that. And I try and play around with the dates of the maintenance, making sure that I can still stick to the approved schedule in terms of funding. So I have to say, PCI, almost everybody, unless the patient is not keen on it, generally speaking, consolidation radiotherapy most of the time. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask Shobit a few questions about non-small cell uh, now. So, um, you know, you said you don't give much second line IO. So, you know, there are different interpretations of the uh, IO indications for uh, non-small cell. Some people are giving uh, IO almost everybody in the frontline setting. Some people being very, very trial specific. Um, in terms of indication. So who should be getting IO in the frontline setting and who shouldn't? I mean, from my perspective, based on, on the trial data, if we're talking performance state of zero, one, no other contraindications, um, whether you're a high PDL one or low PDL one, my you know, for me to give the optimal treatment regime would be looking at IO in some form, either single agent or with chemotherapy. Um, it's always about do you, do you, as we know, the high attrition in non-small cell. Um, so you want to give your best option or treatment up front. So for me, really, I think the only group where I sometimes struggle is the is the squamous, because the squamous low PDL ones, the the chemo backbone is is not it, it's tough love, um, and there are those who are sitting on that border performance stage. So I think I might break with that, and then I might just go with a kind of doublet chemo with the hope that I might be able to give them IO later on. But for me, it, if they haven't got a contradiction, it really is uh, all in the frontline setting. Do you ever start patients on steroids just to crank up the engine a little bit and uh, then consider IO bringing it in? Or is that, that, that's, is that, is that fool's gold, really? You're not really winning in that scenario. I don't think so, because, I mean, to be able to prop somebody up, with with steroids, I, the poor form the steroids it, it's it's an issue, and I think you're then in that territory. And the data is there that you know these are probably a, a, a patients who are going to do bad anyway. So I think if they're bordering on the PS that one stroke two, I'd rather just and I think they can take the treatment. I'd rather crack on because I don't want to then be in the position where I'm also potentially detrimenting the actual efficacy of the treatment. So you know steroids. For me, no, not not in that situation. But I think, and I think we, you know, there's a, there's a real. We learned it the hard way. We'd almost primed our respiratory physicians. They were referring patients to us historically on decks, thinking they've done us a great deal because they propped the patient up. And we were getting these patients now trying to start them on IO, and they've been coming to clinic on four BD decks. And we're like, no, I need to get this down quick. And you know, they probably didn't need it. So, no, for me, it, it's not something I, I'd, I'd advocate. What about brain meds? Um, should we be giving 
um, IO to patients with brain nets. I mean, the trials allowed brain nets, but they had to be treated and, and, and stable. So if you've got brain nets, asymptomatic, should they all be getting whole brain radiation? I mean, brain nets, you've got asymptomatic and then you've got symptomatic. You know, where, where are we? What do we do in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think you, exactly as you said, the trolls excluded untreated brain nets. Blue Tech says uh, not m- more on the non-symptomatic side. I, I mean, my practice isn't to routinely scan stage four or, or palliative patients unless they're symptomatic. So kind of that already sifts them into that um, category that they if they if we pick them up they probably are going to be symptomatic and we're in the in the realms of having to treat them but I think it's it's a complex field because you are then and I think there's that, that knee jerk of brain met steroids and yes we do want to go with it but I think now more and more you know I'm there looking at what how much edema is there do we do we really need to be going in high dose decks the lower we go in with the quicker we can wean them off so it really is for me trying to get it down but I think it's an evolving field. I think it's an exciting field because they were a neglected group. Um, and there's data, small study, I think from Yale, looking at small brain mets and untreated, showing that the, the, these patients actually do, or a proportion of them can respond to IO. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think that that thought initially where the brain is, you know, a non-immune site, I think that's now going to be challenged. And I think we, we should, should be looking at these this group in more detail and hopefully uh, uh, more trials in that setting. Thanks, and I'll bring Joe in. So, does that reflect your your practice, Joe, for for brain mets? Do do you do you uh, treat everybody or nobody or individual case by case basis? So, I think I have to acknowledge that where I work means I have access to things that other oncologists don't, and we have an amazing neuro oncology service. I can get patients SRS reasonably quickly and can actually get them to clinic to start treatment with with treated brain mets. Um, Much the same, I don't routinely scan my non-driver patients with stage four disease unless they have symptoms, um, largely because we have such an excellent service, but I know that that isn't the norm. So, um, you know, question both to you and Shobit. So what about patients that present with autoimmune disease uh you know there are that's a sort of relatively gray uh in you know contraindication for io um so joe what's your what's your your views and practice in patients with with a baseline autoimmune disease i think it depends on what the condition is what the history of that patient's condition is for them the treatments they've had whether they've needed lots of immunosuppression in the past and just caution So obviously what you don't want to do is to deny patients a treatment that actually has that amazing tail. And, you know, we start talking about the C word, which for an oncologist isn't cancer, it's cure. Um, And I think you just have to be really careful. So I have treated people with autoimmune disease and and really carefully consented them to what I could do to them. Um, On the whole, I think we've probably been lucky and gotten away with it. The rheumatoid arthritis brigade now make me really, really nervous we have caused some hideous, hideous disease flares in some of our patients that have taken considerable time to get back under control. So I think it's all about discussion with the patient, acknowledgements of the risks, the patient's own disease and natural history and, and, and that whole, you know, discussion, really important. Sherry, what's your, what's your practice there with these sort of grey gray cases? Are you, are you hawk or, or dove when it comes to uh, autoimmune disease? In the middle, on the dolphin. I mean, I'd say <laughs> exactly what Joe said. You know, I, I totally agree with everything she said. And, and I think it, it, they are probably the group where, you know, I might actually, if I'm extra twitched, 
I might go with the chemo up front and say, you know, because the last thing I want to do is, you know, scupper their whole treatment landscape and, and actually do them no, no good. And that's, you know, if you do touch wood, get them to that second line setting, you're almost in that, well, more of the I've got nothing to lose scenario. So I do, you know, that is, but it, again, it is, it, it's all on what is the autoimmune condition? How, how's the control been? Is it something that they've had no flare-ups for 10 years and they're not on any DMARDs, et cetera. So it, it, it's so individualized. Um, and like you said, it, it's about having that conversation with the patient as well and, and how, how much they, they're willing to, to put on the uh, risk um, on the treatment as well. Thanks. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to ask you about um, managing acute uh, uh, toxicities. I mean, one of the problems we see is we've got patients on the 189 regime, pem pemetrexib, pembrolizumab, renal function gradually creeping up. Is that is that renal uh, autoimmune nephritis? Is that pemetrexid? You know, how do you how do you manage these patients? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I don't know what other centres did, but certainly through COVID, we ditched the pemetrexid and just put people on um, pembrolizumab monotherapy. So a lot of our trainees haven't actually got the working knowledge that pemetrexid can be a nightmare for the kidneys. <laughs> so I think sometimes it's about engaging your, your renal team. And we have an excellent team at the Hammersmith. Um, I've got a patient that had a biopsy on, on Tuesday on PEMPEM, who I'm, I'm not sure if it's the chemo or if it's autoimmune. Um, I think sometimes tissue can be the answer but it's about making sure you've considered every eventuality, isn't it? And every contributing factor. And uh, what, what about some of the rarer toxins? How do you, how do you identify these? And I, and I saw the NCI really say, you know, in your, in your figure, in your um, presentation, the, the rate of peripheral neuropathy in the NCI figure was really quite high. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't really sit with me, but maybe I'm not asking the right questions. Then. No, I and actually, no, I think you're right. And I meant to say that when we went through, I think I've probably seen one case of convincing peripheral neuropathy secondary to, to Pembro. Um, so some of those things, and I see a lot more pneumonitis and that figure suggests that, that they're documenting. Um, I think some of the rarer things can be really difficult. So recently I had a patient in clinic with overwhelming fatigue, small cell on maintenance of tezolizumab, um, really quite fit, performance data zero up front, um, had a very, very manual job that he managed to keep up with for the first couples of treatment and then just crashed. So, you know, the first time he had the usual thyroid screen and in the end, I ended up sending absolutely everything and he had no testosterone, but everything else was was OK. So I think sometimes it's just about throwing money at the situation in terms of the access to tests that we have. Um, and again, I wasn't very clear if that was just, you know, his small cell or whether it was was the treatment. I think sometimes it can be really, really difficult. Um, some of the myositis kind of syndromes are really difficult as well you know people on GCSF that are now you know on chemo IO that are achy I think it's a real minefield and sometimes it's it's time that tells you there's a problem that's right so it's a really good really good point so being being very twitchy and keeping an eye out uh, for for these issues um, so with that it's gone uh, half past we've uh, reached our allocated time slot I'd very much like to thank our expert speakers for their time information i think i could go on for another half an hour at least not another hour picking your mop your gray matter for these these pearls of wisdom perhaps we can do that uh, at some point in the future again thank you very much for our audience and i look forward to seeing all of you um virtually at the btog annual meeting which is on the 
the um, Thursday and Friday, the 27th and 28th of January uh, in 2022. Uh, do register. It will be great to see you there and we'll be discussing all of these issues in greater detail. Thank you for your attention and as ever, thank you for your support.